Welcome to the Revolution in Ideology podcast episode, It Doesn't Matter. I'm Jared Benson. This is Nick Lee. And uh, today, carrying on our conversation uh, about stateless society, we are going to look at least relatively in-depth at one of the key examples we plan on not only for this podcast, but also using in our course. In fact, it's it's going to be one of the uh, probably two main examples. There'll be a bunch of subsidiary examples that we'll probably uh, throw into uh, one big podcast. But but this one deserves at least an episode or two on its own. Um, and that is the story of the Kurds. And we're going to look at them in three different ways. We're going to look uh, at them regarding Iraqi Kurdistan now and its autonomous status. We're going to look at the role of the PKK historically. And then, of course, we're going to look at arguably our favorite example, uh, Rojava in Syria. And that's 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 kind of what we're hoping to do across these next two episodes, two-ish episodes. So to do that, we're going to start with some historical background on who the Kurds are. Um, they're very popular, of course, in academic circles, in activist circles. People are looking at them, uh, for examples, in our research for this, uh, using some of the other groups we were looking at, Zapatistas, Cooperation Jackson. We actually noticed that there have been associations and connections made and even attempts to reach out between these groups. So it shows how inspirational the Kurds are for what they are able to accomplish uh, both historically and, of course, in uh, their current manifestation, both in Iraq uh, and in Syria. Uh, right now, I'd love to say in Turkey and Iran as well. However, it's not going as well in those two two states for various reasons, which we'll, we'll kind of dig into a little bit more as we go through this episode. So let's kick this off with some history. So who are the Kurds? I'm going to do this, again, super briefly because uh, we don't have – this isn't necessarily meant to be a, a strict history lesson, but we need to know a little bit of the background. So I'm going to read uh, uh, from one of our sources here, uh, a man named uh, Israel Naami, and this is what he has to say uh, about the Kurds and where they're from. He says the region, and he's speaking specifically about the Kurds, he inhabits is rugged, mountainous, not given much to cultivation or commerce. But he was driven to horse and rifle. He, bega- he became a scourge to everyone. But if his manners are bad, they are the manners of one who has been incessantly kicked around without an opportunity for creative self-expression. So just right off the bat, I want to get your thoughts. Basically, I thought I, I usually like to kick off with an enigmatic quote. And this one comes from actually 1966. What do you think of that? Um... I think it paints, even though it's super brief, it paints a picture of, I'm assuming, what we're going to end up talking about, uh, because I, honestly, I'm looking forward to this episode, because I know literally nothing about the history of this group of people. Um, but as I read some of the theory, which we'll be talking about later, uh, Ochelon talks a lot about how, you know, the strategy that he comes up with molds itself specifically to the population, uh, which makes sense, and he discusses at length how... Even to this day, they're still living in an era, their lifestyle is still largely focused around sort of the Neolithic era. Uh, so I think that is wrapped up perfectly in that small quote there. Yeah, and, and I should have started with this, but one of the things we're going to do for this history section is, is us historians like to cite our sources. And what I did was I wanted to get an academic article or, or uh, entry 
from different eras to kind of piece together uh, the historical trajectory of the Kurds using primary source work. But the articles we're drawing a lot of this from come from Israel Naami, who wrote in 1966, The Kurdish Drive for Self-Determination. And then uh, from Nader and Tassar in October of 1989, who wrote The Kurdish Mosaic of Discord. And then, uh, who else do we have in here? We have Michael Liesenberg, who wrote Politics, Economy, and Ideology in Iraqi Kurdistan since 03. So the goal with those three kind of like historically oriented sources is to synthesize them from three different eras and see, A, how the conversation changed, but B, what also kind of remains the same, and then draw different conclusions from there. So one of the things we look at when we look at Kurdish history um, is their origins, and we can go thousands and thousands of years back to this time called the or to this event called the Aryan Migration, and uh, yep, those Aryans that became famous uh, because some guy made him famous in the 1930s uh, in Germany. Um, he was very well, well, let's say he was very unaware of the diversity of what he thought the Aryans were, but it doesn't matter. <clears throat> the Kurds stem from the Aryan uh, migra migratory period. And they carved out an identity during the Aryan uh, 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 migratory period um, until the rise of the first Persian Empire uh, led by Cyrus the Great and his descendants, which uh, Nick knows I can go on and on and on about uh, with my, my Persian pride that I have. But, but regardless, we'll skip that for now. And eventually, even during these conquests and the consolidation of the empire, the Kurds still were able to maintain their own ethnic identity. And because of some of the measures under the Persian Empire, they were allowed a certain amount of autonomy. You know, Cyrus was a magnanimous leader, at least as far as the ancient world is concerned, and allowed, like I said, a, a very impressive amount of autonomy for the groups that he quote-unquote conquered, or in some cases, like the Jews, liberated. Uh, regardless, though, they are able to maintain their presence within uh, a couple of manifestations of the Persian Empire. First, the Achaemenids, uh, and then eventually the Parthians, and then eventually the Sasanians. Uh, and I just went through uh, approximately about a thousand years of history there in, in one sentence uh, because I want to keep this thing moving. But eventually they fell under Arab control during the expansion of Islam in the 7th century. And... Uh, Islam expanded through numerous numerous methods, uh, sometimes by the sword, sometimes, of course, through various conversion techniques, sometimes just because it was the most pragmatic for subject people, and, of course, because uh, there were certain advantages of living in an Islamic, uh, in the Islam, in the growing Islamic caliph at the time. Uh, one of those was protected people status. Uh, and again, I don't have time to go into all of the nuances of those right now. But during this period, it must be asserted that many of the Kurds did begin to adopt Islam as a predominant religion. And to be specific, they adopted Sunni Islam, uh, meaning they followed the Sunnah or the trodden path of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The Kurds placed their faith, though, and this is key, below their ethnic identity, especially under the rise of two predominant imperial caliphs, both the Umayyad and the Abbasid. What do you think of that? Again, that's interesting because during this era, the 7th, 8th, 9th century, during the expansion of Islam, one of the expectations is there, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. You, you place faith above all else. And one of the Prophet Muhammad's main goals was to create a united ummah, or a community of believers. And in many ways... Uh, the ensuing caliphs were successful in this, but 
the Kurds, at least in their own historical uh, uh, records, indicate that they still maintained a predominant ethnic identity that somewhat superseded their faith. What do you think of that? I mean, I think the passion for maintaining their ethnic identity still reverberates to this day, which is why they're trying to carve out their own identity and geographical area, etc., in the face of many political state actors and militaries, etc., they're still clinging on to that ethnic identity. So the passion that we see today is obviously evidenced by the fact that you just gave that they place that above religion as well, which I think is key. And I've gone through already a couple of the different, again, quote-unquote ethnicities. I, I, I want to put that in quotes because, again, ethnicities in the ancient through the Middle-Aged world are, are suspect at best. There's so much intermingling. Um, at that point in time, we've had numerous invasions. It's basically at what we would call the quote-unquote Middle East, which is a term that doesn't come along later until the British are trying to orient themselves. But regardless, we'll call it the Middle East since that's probably what our audience knows it as. Um, there's so much intermingling over the course of these centuries uh, that it's very difficult to say what kind of ethnic purity there may or may not be. And DNA evidence today even kind of indicates that. But I do want to emphasize at this point we've introduced two of the primary actors that do play a role today in addition to the Kurds, and that would be Persians and Arabs. And I'm about to introduce the third. So during the Abbasid Khalif, around the 11th century, a group of uh, uh, Seljuks, uh, they are Turks. They're Turkic, uh, in origin, which draws them closer to, it's, they're from the East, basically. Um, they are the people of the steppe, related, of course, to the Mongols, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are numerous Turkic groups that still live in this region. And then, of course, the ones I want to focus on are the ones that migrated west and eventually found themselves into uh, Anatolia, which not coincidentally is now called Turkey. Anyway, one of the main, uh, uh, invading forces was a group uh, called the Seljuks. And the Seljuks, at least initially, through their conquests, were able to create a semi-unified empire um, while keeping the Abbasid Khalifs around as basically the religious leaders to maintain that sort of religious authority, especially since the Turks themselves didn't necessarily have that lineage or that backing. It was one way to maintain control over the region, at least religiously. And then, of course, since both groups usually relied on Persians to run the empires, uh, serving in positions like vizier, what we see is this interesting kind of... Uh, basically this triumvirate of leadership that rises during the Seljuk, uh, Seljuk Empire. There is, uh, at the very top, some political intrigue. Uh, during this time, we see the birth of the Order of Assassins, and there are some targeted assassinations, and it basically leads to a fracturing of the Seljuk Empire. And it is during this fracturing that, once again, the Kurds, who at this point are now a minority to, again, Persians, Arabs, and Turks, they're now a minority. It's during this fragmentation that they are able to create these autonomous emirates, which is, for lack of a better term for our audience, I think city-states fits it, but, but not just, you, it's not just like this urban environment. It's basically these, these kind of villages and they include like the hinterlands around them, usually again in these same regions, this very mountainous, rugged region. So I'm not even sure city-states is the best description. Um, let's say semi-urban, semi-agrarian, semi-pastoral uh, environments that are kind of, again, they're operating autonomously because the Seljuk state was relatively loose. Anyway, we get through uh, during this time uh, 
a very important period called the Crusades, an invasion by the West and the Catholic Church, which is at first very bloody and then, of course, leads to different political uh, associations during this period of time. The only reason I emphasize the Crusades at all is because once the Crusaders eventually are are defeated, or at least the first level of their defeat in the 12th century under uh, a Kurdish leader named uh, Salah al-Din, originally named Yusuf, but his name, Salah al-Din, translates from Arabic to English as the righteousness of the faith. The reason I emphasize him here is even to this day, he is considered one of the more prominent uh, Kurdish figures in history. However, I must emphasize this. His ethnicity did not play a very crucial role in his leadership. He saw himself more as a champion, uh, again, based on the translation of his name, of the faith and it overcoming these Western invaders, uh, which is very interesting, but it must be stated, arguably one of the greatest leaders in, in Middle Eastern history was a Kurd, um, and that's why I like to bring him up. From that point on, we see a number of other invaders in which the Kurds are now forced to deal with, again, subservient status as more people uh, and more groups of people continue to invade the region, foremost of which after the Crusades would be the Mongols. And we know when the Mongols enter a place, it doesn't necessarily go well for the indigenous population. The establishment in the region of the Ilkhanid dynasty under Hulagu Khan uh, did not necessarily uh, bode well for Kurdish autonomy. And from there, we get another rising uh, couple of states that basically split what we would call the Kurdistani region <clears throat> at least into two parts. And that's at the bare minimum, at least into two parts. In the West, we have the rise of a very famous Turkish empire called the Ottoman Empire. And in the East, we have the rise of, at this point, the fourth Persian uh, empire called the Safavid. The reason I'm emphasizing this is we now see Turks and Persians uh, basically creating a border with their two empires, and that border runs right through the middle of what we would call Kurdistan. More importantly regarding faith in this is the Ottoman Empire remained loosely different confessions of Sunni Islam, while the Safavid took a very different angle. And it's under uh, the uh, their first king, Shah Ismail I, that they adopt Shia Islam, specifically uh, Twelver for the listeners that know the different versions of, of, of Shia Islam that are, uh, are out there. So what are the dates? Where are we now? We are now uh, – so the Ottoman Empire establishes itself in the West a little bit earlier than the Safavids. So the Ottoman Empire establishes itself, at least in their own historiography, around 1299. They don't really become a power player until the 1300s, mid-1300s and 1400s. The Safavid come along in the early 1500s. So basically they are they're, – they're, they're, we're watched – the Kurds are stuck kind of playing – they want to remain autonomous during this period of time, but these growing states and the state builders, right, the Ottoman dynasty and the Safavid dynasty, mainly due to the competition they have with each other, are making it very difficult. So would we say, is this the first time that the Kurdish, like, geographical area gets very rigid, like, split up delineation? I don't know if it's the first time because I kind of flew through some other people that had been there. I didn't really mention a lot of the earlier Western incursions by Greeks and Romans and so on and so forth. But we're starting to see a, a, a clearer distinction during this time, especially with the rise of the Safavid and their, their, their faith in Shiism. And again, like I said, that's the beginning of the 1500s. And there is definitely a rivalry between these two empires, heavily predicated on ethnicity, but even more so on these different understandings 
of hereditary right in Islam, which is really what Sunni and Shia, that, at least that was the original issue, was the hereditary right, uh, or whether it should, there should be any hereditary right to be the, uh, the successor to the messenger of God. Anyway, um, what we see here, though, is they're struggling. They also are struggling to exert control. And when I say they, I mean these empires, that the Kurds are resistant during this period of time to these imperial players. Eventually, we'll also know that the, uh, the Russians in the north will also play a role. I'm going to fast forward through these empires. The Safavid eventually collapse uh, due to a host of reasons from Western incursions to debt to internal tor- turmoil. They end up uh, basically collapsing before the Ottoman Empire, which opens things up a little bit in the eastern front. The Ottoman Empire, however, in the west, which which did have a little bit more of what we would call Kurdistan included in it, remains relatively strong until we get to like the late 18th and early 19th century, and there is some fragmentation there. One of the things that helps fragment the Turks during this period of time, or the Ottoman Empire, is the inclusion uh, or the allowance of basically... These, these economic concessions, especially regarding the British, and again, this is during the Western colonial uh, era, and they're trying to find different ways to acquire the resources, find cheap labor. We all know what colonialism is, so I'm not going to necessarily go into that. But the Ottoman Empire was a little bit too strong to outright colonize. So the British, uh, and to a lesser degree the French, and even to a lesser degree the Germans, found other ways to make inroads into the Ottoman Empire, and one of them is through... Uh, uh, is through debt. Um, it is through debt and these economic concessions that promise to get the Ottoman Empire and the Sultanate out of debt. Uh, the reason I bring this up is with these Western ideals making their way into the Ottoman Empire, well, one of the Western ideals that makes its way into the empire is nationalism. Um, and different groups within this Ottoman state would start to want to assert their own nationalist identity and autonomy for a host of different reasons. Maybe, of course, things were not going well in the empire, which is, again, kind of an irony that many of these groups eventually were absorbed into the Ottoman Empire because of its early successes. Well, again, as we start getting into the 1800s and and even the early 1900s, we see that's not necessarily the the, the case. Uh, I, I hate this term, this term, but a lot of our audience will probably know it. During World War One, or even to the lead-up of World War One, the Ottoman Empire was often referred to as the sick man of Europe because of its internal issues, its debt issues, its economic issues. So uh, Westerners took advantage of this through quote-unquote investments um, and in some ways bailing out the sultan. Anyway, one of the ideas that comes with these Western incursions is Kurdish – is not Kurdish – is nationalism in general and one of the groups that began to adopt a more nationalist understanding of themselves were the Kurds. So – I'm going to pause here for a second. I want to get Nick's thoughts on this. We, we talk about nationalism a lot in, in, in our classes, and we talk about it usually in very negative and derogating terms. Uh, I am not a nationalism fan by any stretch of the imagination, and we may even make an episode where I go off on nationalism. But regardless, for now, I want to perhaps give it a quote-unquote silver lining. What I guess I want your opinion. What role do you think nationalism nationalism can play for groups that feel they are being subordinated in a place like the Ottoman Empire or later on colonial Africa or Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, I think you just nailed it. That That's exactly one of the benefits, the positives that nationalism can have is 
for groups of people whose identities are being fragmented and questioned and subjugated, etc., by other groups. Nationalism is an identity that can supersede all other identities and serve to create cohesion and solidarity within a group. I mean, I think that's one of the things that it does. Now, very oftentimes, very negative things come out of that sense of nationalism, but it can serve as a benefit to create solidarity among a group. I mean, it creates a sort of supra-identity above everything else that regardless of your ethnicity or your class or your religion or etc., you can still identify with this sense of nationalism and everyone can have that in common. That can be a good or a bad thing depending on how it's utilized and what historical era, etc., but that's what it can do. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's definitely one of the things we see. And and there was always, like I said, this this attachment to ethnic identity and sometimes a little bit of separatism, regardless of what era I was talking about. And again, I went through uh, what, 3,000 years of history there in, you know, 10 minutes or so. So we didn't do, obviously, all the justice we could have in regarding a historical trajectory of basically Kurdish identity. But that's, again, not necessarily the focus of what we want to talk about here. Um, as far as nationalism within the empire is concerned, one of the things that kind of really gets people thinking are the separatist movements that were succeeding, especially in the 1800s. The Ottoman Empire began to shrink because of successful wars of independence and separatist movements within the Ottoman, uh, Ottoman state. And one of those would be, of course, uh, the Greeks who gained their independence from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I want to say in the early 1820s, um, I'll, we can look it up, but regardless, in the early 1820s and then later on, there were some Egyptian movements, although that didn't, that didn't necessarily go well. That ended up co-opted by both the, the uh, British and the French in certain ways. But – and of course, there were movements regarding uh, Armenians and, uh, well, a, one of the biggest and most prominent ones, which we'll talk about here in a, in a second, were the various movements that sprang up in the Balkans, especially led by Serbians, which will lead, of course, to a world war. In fact, why wait? Let's – let's well, well, hold on. Before we get to, of course, that, Kurdish nationalism emerged and it led to uh, an uprising, an uprising by a, a Kurdish sheikh or, or I think – for our audience, Sheik. Sometimes you'll hear it pronounced, I guess, that way here in the West. But a Sheik, uh, Ubaid, uh, you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation here, Ubaidullah, um, he demanded ethnic group uh, status within the Ottoman Empire from the Sultanate. So it's not necessarily a full-blown, they're trying to separate maybe the way other groups had, but to have a special awarded ethnic group status within the empire. And again, this is this is still in the 1800s um, and through the 19 early 1900s. However, the Sultan at the time, who is a ripe with numerous like historical uh, research, Sultan Abdul Hamid responded by co-opting the Kurds uh, and started to give them prestigious pre prestigious positions within his government. Why do you think that was a shrewd move to maybe douse uh, the d to try and douse the flames of another nationalism? Because it wouldn't have been the first time that the Ottoman Empire had to deal with a rising nationalism. Because this this empire is so huge; it is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious. You've got Jewish populations, Christian populations, different kinds of Christian populations, Orthodox, Catholic, etc., and Turks, Persians, Azeris, Armenians. You've got Greeks, Albanians, so many different groups of people all in this empire, and it's starting to fracture. Why do you think? What uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid there uh, may have doused those flames, at least for a little bit. I mean, this is just like shrewd movement controlling 101, right? You take 
some members of the groups that might want to be separatist or etc. or have this prestigious status within the empire, and you take some of them and you put them in leadership positions within your government because then you can control them and then they have no basis for arguing against a lack of status and a lack of privilege. I mean, this is we've seen this throughout history so many times. That's good. No, absolutely. And then things kind of kind of spark a renewed drive for self-determination in 1908. And it's funny because it doesn't come from the Kurds. Well, I mean, it does come from the Kurds. We don't want to take take credit away. But one of the things that helps kind of inspire it is the very famous Young Turk Revolution in 1908, which was, uh, among uh, so many different things, was somewhat of a modernizing movement that was meant to challenge uh, the established state at that time. Regardless what the Young Turk Revolution meant for the Kurds, it means a whole lot for, for Turkish history. But again, this is not Turkish history we're, we're engaging in right now. What it means for the Kurds is this idea that they, with again, with some of the inspiration from the Young Turks, is to drive for self excuse me self determination through constitutional reform. That's one of the main goals that comes from the Young Turk Revolution for the Kurds. The Kurds see what the Young Turks are introducing, and again, modern ideals, some Western ideals, and they want a piece of this pie. And one of the things they think they can do, again, under the Ottoman, it's still the Ottoman Empire is get their self-determination through constitutional reforms. Um, they start have they start sending in government representatives uh, to try and serve uh, in Istanbul. They start forming clubs. They start producing their own brochures, their literature. They start reproducing books of Kurdish folklore. A lot of that was like oral history, which is super cool. But now that they're, they're starting to produce these and have them printed and distributed throughout Kurdish communities, they're clearly striving uh, to recreate their – and this is a term I use all the time – ethically constitutive story. They're drawing upon their past historiography through both, of course, actual history and mythology. Yeah, I mean they, it's straight-up folk, folklore, but to try and manufacture this uh, – yeah, for lack of a better term, this nationalism. They also started to support these ideas within the community of an industrial education, which is super important if we think about it, because again, they have this rich history of being these rugged, quote unquote, people that live in the mountains, and it is equal parts agrarianism and pastoralism, and 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 like I said, a a somewhat civic urban life, but not urban as we know it. I'm trying to think of a better word for like these 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 smaller these smaller polities. Um, but now this industrial education, this kind of movement towards modernity, um, that's actually going to play a very important role in some of the manifestations of, of Kurdistan that we see now. Any thoughts? Especially on the reconstruction of the folklore and the brochures. and Yeah, I have two thoughts. The first is basically that, that I think this is, we've talked about this extensively. It's telling of when you're trying to create a new identity, you have to also invent a history of that group, whatever it is. And that could be straight up just like inventing, like making from nothing, or it could be a resurrection, a resurrection and a molding of past histories that have been uh, suppressed or any other number of strategies. But anytime you're trying to sort of create or, um, rebirth and identity you have to also do the same thing with that group's history they need some kind of shared identity a uh, historical identity that they can look to and share and uh, sort of build upon etc going forward and also anytime you have a movement 
you also want to look to that history to inform your actions and your beliefs and your the future that you're trying to build for yourself. So that's one thought. My second thought is I think it's very interesting how you keep trying to search for a word for the, this type of like quote unquote city in this area. And I think that's actually very telling. I wish I had more time to go into like a geographical analysis of this area because I think it's key. The fact that it is so geographically diverse, which lends itself to such a diverse type of lifestyles is probably key to why it was so hard for someone to come along, even a colonizer, and just without fail monopolize the area because it was so diverse in so many ways, which I think is key. Absolutely. No, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. So, I mean, the 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 seeds are already there when World War One breaks out. And uh, the Ottoman Empire eventually joins the Central Powers. And again, this long story short, uh, they end up on the losing side, which is interesting because they actually – many would argue they fared, relatively speaking, pretty well, well in World War I, um, especially winning uh, major battles against the British. Um, and uh, one of – Gallipoli being one of them. I was, I was pausing for a second to see if I could recall Gallipoli. But regardless <clears> – <throat> One of the tactics that the Allies used, especially in the Ottoman Empire, a little bit in the neighboring Austro-Hungarian Empire, because again, these were two two empires that many thought uh, time had passed by, right? Empires were no longer a thing. Everyone else, not everyone else, but a good portion of Europe was moving towards nation-states, right? England was a nation, and of course the UK, and of course we have France as a nation-state, and, and these other entities, but you still have some of these, this old guard around. You have a Habsburg Empire, or Habsburg Dynasty in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You have the Ottoman Empire, you have the Russian Empire. So you have some of these. Russia, of course, is going to leave World War One and have their own little revolution, which we may in the future cover in a in a podcast. It's a pretty interesting story, of course, but um, it's also kind of been done to death. So maybe we won't on second thought. But at any rate, it's interesting that one of the tactics that the Allies used, especially the British and the French, was to go into these empires with various, uh, 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 not just, of course, military leaders and armies, but with actual propagandists to promote ethno-nationalism within the empires to try and fracture them, to get more nationalist movements to fight against, whether it was the Habsburg dynasty or the Ottoman Empire, to try and fight against them. Um, we know it worked very well, uh, with the British using, uh, the Arabs and, and promoting Arab nationalism during World War One. Uh, a lot of people are aware of the story of T.E. Lawrence, uh, i.e. Lawrence of Arabia and what he was able to accomplish there, which of course, most people also should know that Lawrence's vision and his promises that he had made with numerous cohorts in Arabia did not come to fruition because of the actions of some of his, or not so even some of his, some of what the British government was doing. Uh, they were promising a lot of things to a lot of different people and planning to go back on most of them, which leads me to one of the things that I kind of want to emphasize here is this ethno-nationalism uh, among our Arabs also leaks into, of course, what we call Turks. Again, this was a very diverse empire. It was a melting pot uh, on a massive scale. It bridged Asia and Europe um, and even, of course, North Africa at its peak. So there are numerous different groups of people, and this ethno-nationalism began to find its way into all different groups, the Kurds, of course, being foremost. Um, and they started to seek, in this way, perhaps their own nation-state. But a lot of that, and here's one of the things that's going to be wildly problematic, the West, when it gets its uh, imperial or colonial hands on a region tends to seriously, for lack of a better term, fuck it up. 
um, and the British and French are are definitely going to do that. If you don't know what the Sykes-Picot Agreement is, look it up on YouTube super briefly. There's there's a bunch of great two-minute videos on it. I'm not going to describe it in all of its detail. But very briefly, the Sykes-Picot Agreement basically was an agreement between, of course, the French and the British in this case on what they were going to do with this new – once they won, this is the, the, the Sykes-Picot Agreement is even before they've actually won the war, what they're going to do with this region, with the Ottoman Empire once it's done. And they already get out a map and start carving it up into these other little states that they will have a mandate over or basically they will control until they see fit or until they think those people can rule themselves. Well, in the Sykes-Picot Agreement, we know that it led to, of course, many of the problems we're seeing in the region today, carving out states uh, like Syria and then Lebanon off of Syria. And then, of course, uh, I don't think it's any secret to anyone listening how this is still going to this day in Palestine. Um, again, we can trace the, the roots of this uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or at least some of it, to Sykes-Picot. We also know, uh, those of us here in the United States, how this went for a nation-state called, called Iraq, which was carved out of multiple different former states. There's Safavid areas there, there's Kurdish areas there, there's Ottoman areas there. It's basically kind of smack dab there in the middle of all of these, these, these uh, historical states with different ethnicities and different religious beliefs. But here's the thing. It worked under those empires, under different ideologies, but once the ideology of nationalism is introduced, it doesn't work nearly as well because people are striving for their own state. If we go back to even the beginning of World War I, it was Serbian nationalism that led to the assassination of the, uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So these states... Or, or these people within these decided upon states did not necessarily get to decide where they were going to live on their own, and Sykes-Picot completely ignore, ignored the Kurds. Um, more importantly, once the war was over, however, um, very few people in the West are taught this, which is kind of interesting. I very rarely have a student that's ever been taught the Turkish War for Independence, but right after World War I is over and the Ottoman Empire has lost, there is a new war that breaks out where... Uh, Mustafa Kemal, uh, now known as Ataturk, father of the Turks, uh, led a resistance movement against both the Allied powers and the remnants of the Ottoman Empire that were still kind of hanging out in, in Istanbul, basically the Sultan, and he wins. He wins this amazing – so right after World War I, the Allies get beat back by a new, basically, Turkish republic led by Turkish nationalism. This was awful if you were a minority in what we would now call Turkey because it was so such a Turkish nationalist movement and it was highly secular. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk was – he was actually educated in the West and saw overt Islam as one of the things that had held the Ottoman, uh, Ottoman Empire back. So it was a very secular movement, a secular nationalist movement. So if you were uh, basically any minority ethnicity, you were either getting on board with assimilation into what it meant to be – Turkish, but if you didn't want to be that, then you're kind of stuck without any sort of status. Um, even before the war's over, we saw how this went for a group of people called the Armenians. Two million were ethnically cleansed by the Ottoman Empire in its in its death throes. And eventually, when we get to uh, the post-war, uh, similar programs would be introduced, maybe not to the scale of the Armenian genocide, but basically coercive coercive movements to try and get groups like, again, remaining Armenians and especially Kurds to be involved in this Turkish uh, uh, nation-building project. A treaty 
uh, is signed in August 10th of 1920 called the Treaty of Sevres. Now, this treaty is important because it, it, there, within this treaty, there was a referendum to create a Kurdish state. There was a referendum within to create a Kurdish state, which is interesting. It was outlined uh, by a man named Sharif Pasha back in 1919, who represented society for the uh, uh, ascension of Kurdistan at the Paris Peace Conference. There was some controversy, though, even in Kurdish communities about what this state would look like, look like. And other Kurdish nationalists during this time period disagreed basically on territorial disputes. This region called the Van region was not included. And so a lot of these other Kurdi uh, Kurdish nationalists were not on board with what Sharif Pasha had negotiated. Moreover, the Treaty of Sev is completely overwritten by the Turkish War for Independence, which lasts about three years. So on July 24th of 1923, another treaty is signed after that, uh, after the War for Independence called the Treaty of Lusan, and it establishes the new Republic of Turkey and has completely overwritten the Treaty of Sev. And one of the things that's overwritten is the Kurds will not, there's not even an option. There will be no state. What do you think of that? I mean, that's all super, like, again, complex, and, and hopefully I didn't go through it too quickly so people are kind of following the, the, the narrative here, but... I, all it makes me think of is, like, how the colonial powers want to impose nation-states because that's how they can control an area. But then it's almost as if... I mean, it's not almost as if we know this. They have no foresight because the second that they do that... Then other groups, you're like, we're like, we're going to make you have a nation state. And then other groups in the area are like, well, wait a minute, we also want a nation state. And then they're like, well, no, not like that. You know what I mean? Like, no, you, well, not you, just this one that we can control completely with no consideration of like what actual groups of people live in a geographical area. Like, straight up just ignoring that. Oh, yeah. You know, no, like I mean, ridiculous. even going back to Sykes Pico, these guys have no knowledge of the area. And that's not unique. All the modern nation states in the West, the, the UK, yeah. the United States, we, we, we like to claim, like, we, we understand what's going on in these regions. We know nothing. Like, it, it, there's just pure, unadulterated ignorance when it comes to the actual situations here um, and the way people have been living at this point successfully in the cradle of civilization for, like, thousands of years. But, hey, we've been around a couple hundred. We know what to do. I mean, I legit, short of, like, some very very rigid geographical border like an island or a cliff or a river whatever like i yeah. don't think any border actually reflects like a lineage between people you know <laughs> right. what i mean like yeah so after these the the first of course the overwritten treaty of sev and the and then the treaty of lucerne after the turkish war for independence the new republic of Tur turkey and european mandate system basically split the kurds into four areas that we now know today to kind of get us closer to the modern modern period um a number of of kurds end up in the new republic of turkey some end up in Iraq, which at that point in time is still basically being directed by the British. Some send up, uh, some end up in Iran, uh, which is very interesting because at that point in time, uh, Iran is on an interesting trajectory. It is, um, it is being influenced by both the British and what was the Russians, but now the Soviets. Um, so there's interesting things going on in Iran, which we'll, we'll come up with here in a sec. Well, I'll talk about here in a second. What year are we? The 20s? We're in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, 1920s and 30s. And then, of course, you have uh, Syria, which at that point was mandated by France. So we've got like the Kurds split up into all these states, but also being 
um, influenced by numerous powers, both Western and, quote-unquote, indigenous to the region, right? Persians, Arabs, Turks, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the Turks migrated, you know, in the 11th century, as I mentioned, but still, they've been there long enough. Um, and further, Turkish, Arab, and Persian statecraft alongside Western meddling further marginalizes the Kurds through World War II. And when I mean statecraft, so group, so, so, so people like Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who are trying to create this very strong new nation state and assert itself along Western lines, again, it's heavily Turkish in its nationalist, uh, intent. It is highly secularized, which is interesting, especially when you consider that many of the Kurds, even though maybe ethnicity in an earlier statement had, had, fallen behind faith just a little bit. We're still Muslim. And I mean, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk <clears throat> in this project, we know went so far as to uh, abolish basically the, the, the caliphate or the khalif, uh, which there hasn't been one uh, at least agreed upon since, which is interesting. Iran is going through the same thing. They're under an ultra-nationalist leader or a heavily nationalist leader himself, Reza Khan. He's got a similar project going on there, trying to make everything very Persian. Um, and <clears throat> like I said, the British and the French, also very nationalist in Iraq and Syria, along, of course, with the <clears throat> local Arab leaders. The Kurds are basically really forced uh, ba back into the mountains and, and back into underground movement at this moment in time after possibly, and this is, this is what's so disappointing, possibly having these very positive, uh, movements forward from the Young Turks Revolution to the Treaty of Sev. There was, there was, uh, p perhaps light at the end of the tunnel and it all just gets doused. Um, okay. So from here, the next like major, uh, improvement for Kurdish autonomy is the, very famous Republic of Mahabad, which is established in Iran between 1946 and 1947. Basically, allied occupation of Iran during World War II led to the Soviet promotion of Kurdish nationalism in like this early Cold War jockeying situation. So let me kind of go into that a little bit more. Basically, during World War II, uh, Reza, Reza Khan, uh, the, the, for lack of a better term, the dictator of Iran uh, through the 20s and 30s, uh, actually placed in power more or less by the British, then started going against the British. He felt that he was he was basically chafing under their their rule, um, went nationalist, and to be blunt, sided with the wrong stride in World War II and uh, signed an agreement with, with uh, the Third Reich and allowed German businesses, et cetera, to operate in Iran. And of course, when the Allies said, hey, stop doing that, we put you in power, we can take you out, he didn't listen, and then they, they took him out of power. And then the Soviets occupy Iran, and one of the things that they uh, promoted there was Kurdish nationalism. <clears throat> I'm emphasizing this so much because if the Soviets were one of the main allies for Kurdish autonomy in 1946 and 47, clearly there's going to be an ideological influence there. What do you think of that? So, yeah, I mean, I... Fully agree. Where does the... Because you talk about this in the revolutions class whenever we've done like the Russian Revolution, etc. What's the timeline of when the Russians basically abandon Iran as a colony and let it do its own thing and then come back? That's like between the 20s and World War II is when that's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's off and on between then. So during the Russian Revolution in 19... So they were a primary occupier of Iran um, for a good part of the late 1800s and early 1900s. And, uh, they, yeah, for lack of a better term, the Tsarist Russia was awful in Iran. However, the Bolshevik revolution 
turns that on its head just a little bit. And then, of course, one of the things that Lenin, uh, at least in at least in language, tried to alleviate were the prior colonial engagements of the czar because it undermined, <clears throat> it undermined the idea of a global proletariat. But regardless, Soviet interest, again, oftentimes found its way back into the region, especially for the precious resource of oil. So shortly after World War uh, one in the twenties, the Soviets intervene a little bit in Iran, and then they really intervene a great deal at the bra- at the onset of World War Two. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's obviously going to be a seeping in of Soviet ideologies into the region. I mean, that's unavoidable, especially with this oscillation back and forth of influence and control, et cetera, over the course of you know the better part of three or four decades, five decades. Like that's going to happen. And the Soviets had successfully maneuvered um, different parts to – well, different parts of the region. Uh, Azerbaijan's one of them where they brought like Soviet-style rule to the Azeris. Um, and the Kurds saw some inspiration there with, with, with some of the Soviet success regarding Azerbaijan, which again is, is right there in the same, the same region. As far as the Soviet and Kurdish aims in what is called the Republic of Mahabad, basically the goal was autonomy specifically for Iranian Kurds. Um, basically the Soviets would get to supervise social, well, the Kurds would get to supervise social matters while kind of being looked over by, uh, Soviet, mm, advisors for lack of a better term. Um, all state officials though, specific to Mahabad, Mahabad would have been of local origin. So there was actually a high degree of autonomy there. And when I say a high degree, I mean, if we compare this Soviet project and maybe it is a colonial project, the Republic of Mahabad to Western colonial projects, none of them, none of them met this level of autonomy that the Soviets granted, um, the, the Republic of Mahabad. So all state officials would have been of local origin, and there was going to be somewhat of a coerced unity and fraternity with the new Azerbaijani state. So the Soviets were trying to, again, they were trying to revolutionize the region. Let me be blunt. They're trying to revolutionize the region. Um, the Kurds, though, struggled with this last one. Amid pressure to leave Iran, the Soviets pushed the Kurds to actually join Azerbaijan, and the Kurds did not. The reason – so in Iran, Iranian nationalism, of course, is on the rise like it is everywhere else in the world in, in post-World War II society. And so the Kurds no longer felt welcome. They felt pressure to leave. Well, rather than establishing their own state, the Soviets were like, eh, the Republic of Mahabad might not last, but here, just go join the Azeris. Well, the Kurds, that, that's not what they wanted. They wanted a state. They did not want to live uh, in Azerbaijan with the Azeris. Um, we also know that at this point, the West has placed a new dictator in charge of Iran. It is Shah, uh, uh, Reza Muhammad Pahlavi. Um, he is a dictator and I can spend a lot of time on him, but he's, he's also somewhat of a Western public. Um, once the Soviets, uh, abandon Mahabad, he unleashes his forces on the Kurds in Iran and he attacks. There are countless, countless casualties and Mahabad collapses. Um, it's interesting to note though. One of the leaders that we're going to be talking about now in the modern modern world, Mustafa Barzani, ends up leaving. He was in Mahabad. And for, for those that don't know, I'm pr- doing a preview. When we get to Iraqi Kurdistan, the Barzani is the most important family. So they had this experience in Iran, in Mahabad, and he ends up being forced into exile, and it is the Soviet Union that accepts him. So there's more learning, there's more training. All of that is important, um, which is which is key. Now, 
I kind of want to now put you on the spot a little bit. So we know that Barzani ends up in the Soviet Union. We know the Republic of Mahabad kind of set this template out of what might be accomplished. And we know that the ideology, for lack of a better term, seeped in. So I want you to maybe give our audience like a super brief, if that's even possible, like your version of, of what Marxist-Leninism might present for people, because that's what, what Barzani was was influenced by, and that's going to influence Iraqi Kurdistan, how that might play a role in seeking autonomy. I mean, you've led us to a perfect point where this makes perfect sense and why you would, if you were Kurdish at the time, believe in this ideology. A, because it's you've heard it from the Soviets that have been in and out of your area in different capacities for the course of decades. But B, because it could represent liberation for your people, liberation from all kinds of oppression. So I think it's key that, I mean, what you want in Marx-Leninism, you want a socialist state, right? That's what you're after. Um, it's no surprise that the Kurds want their own state because Jared has just given us the history of nationalism in the area um, and as it's been promoted by various different forces over time to serve their own ends, obviously what you would conclude at the time if you are Kurdish is that you want a Kurdish state. That's what you want and that's what you need because that's how you can establish your autonomy and govern yourself. That's important because we will see them abandon that ideology uh, later on, which we'll t- discuss uh, probably in the next episode. But So they want a state of their own. That's key, obviously, and it makes sense based on the history you've just been given uh, with the promotion of nationalism and so on, like I just said. You would want a socialist state because socialism, in theory, represents a liberation of the people from the rule of oppressive dictators, uh, fascists, outside colonial powers, etc. So you want power and liberation for the people. You, as a, a Kurd, would not be concerned with, you know, you don't want some elite government coming and ruling your people. You want it to come from the bottom. Um the Leninism aspect is kind of interesting, and I have to assume that's only because they were under the power of Lenin for quite a while during this era. Um, because if you're like an indigenous Kurd, you probably wouldn't really be all about revolution from above. You'd be more about the traditional revolution from below, but you probably don't know better. Uh, I guess at the time, you probably aren't super well-versed if you're an indigenous Kurd in the intricacies of Marxism. As uh, Shit, what am I saying? Most people today aren't super well-versed in that. So you're just adopting the ideologies that can represent liberation for you at the moment, and you want a socialist state because that is the example of liberation for you at the time. And it still is the example for many people to this day, I think. What you said was kind of interesting because technically it's Stalin that, that's in power at this moment in time when, when the Mahabad Republic is coming in. And, and there are, I don't know, mixed feelings, I suppose, on the, the, the socialist left regarding regarding Stalin. I, I give you mine. They're not good. Um, don't have good feelings. But, but why... Leninism, even under Stalin, because again, like Stalin is the one that maybe helped establish, or at least under his leadership, the Republic of Mahabad. But we know, at least ideologically, he may have professed some Leninism, but in practice, it it was shaky at best. So I think there are a few crucial differences between Stalinism, obviously, and Leninism. But one of the crucial ones is that Stalin basically abandons the global socialist project. And so... 
He is more focused on a socialist Soviet state specifically, and he's focused internally on making sure that the Soviet state can compete with the other capitalist global powers. And that has huge ramifications for the socialist project in uh, the Soviet Union. But from a Kurdish perspective, if you start adopting that, I mean, you basically don't give a shit about a global socialist project. You're still trying to eke out a living for yourself and a presence, a nation for yourself in your area. So it's very reasonable that you wouldn't have adopted the global socialist project either because you wouldn't give a shit about that. You're focused on yourself for the time being and trying to figure out some kind of liberation and recognition for your people. Nice. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk, um, let's do, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. So we're gonna see kinda, I might kinda go back and forth a little bit, like, in, as far as the timeline to, to establish specifically. So now we're gonna focus, again, on Kurds in Iraq. Um, after Mahabad and a nationalist, like, imperialist violence against the Kurds in both Turkey and Iran. So again, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, as I mentioned, had been violent against the Kurds at that point for the better part of two decades. Um, it lightens up after Ataturk, but regardless, not a lot. And then, of course, we just found out that after the Republic of Mahabad, the new Shah, quote-unquote the new sheriff in town, is basically being an asshole to all these various groups under the tutelage of both uh, the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, they both play a very important role in dictating the Shah's actions there. Um, Iraq, though, presented an opportunity for the Kurds. And this is one of the things that I really enjoy because we're going to see this again when we get to Syria more, in more modern times. Iraq's instability in comparison to Turkey and Iran was apt for organization. Um, also, the proportion is important here that compared to Turkey and Iran, that the Kurds represented in Iraq the largest minority in, in the nation state. Now, that doesn't mean there were more Kurds in Iraq than the other places. It's just in comparison to the rest of the population, the Kurds are a massive group of people compared to like Turks in Turkey or Persians in Iran. Does that make sense? So there's opportunity there. They are a large group. Um, they're also in Iraq, the most geographically concentrated, uh, I think since we're more familiar with Iraq, uh, in the United States based on various, whatever, imperial endeavors over the last couple of decades, most people know the Kurds are concentrated up there in the north, um, and, it, well, northwest. Uh, it's also important to understand that fellow Iraqis in, in, uh, in, in and of themselves recognize the Kurds as a separate minority entitled to certain political, cultural, and economic rights. That is wildly important because, again, that's not necessarily the case in Iran and Turkey, but Iraqis, for some reason, um, which isn't necessarily clear on my in my sources, felt that the Kurds, by being such a large minority, did not identify as Arab um, and deserved political, cultural, and economic rights. What do you think of that? Because again, the, the Turks of Turkey did not necessarily feel that way. They might, there might be a couple of like kind-hearted souls that, 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 you know, had some sort of empathy or solidarity with them. Um, or the same could be said in Iran, but, but Iraq, there, most people thought that they deserved their own, their own situation. I mean, I think that could be just merely a result of the fact that it was so fragmented there. And there are so many different populations of people that, it would probably lend itself to being more sympathetic to that kind of recognition, I would think. Yeah. So rewinding a little bit, there was an Anglo-Iraqi treaty um, in 1930 that officially ended the British mandate, um, but it failed to specify any specific rights for Kurds. It definitely left 
the the British left Iraq as much as we can say they actually left Iraq when we're talking about modern imperialism. But they left Iraq but uh, specified nothing for Kurdish rights. This led to, of course, Kurdish protests to the – uh, decade-old League of Nations or so at that point in time. Uh, the League of Nations is a predecessor, perhaps some would argue, to the United Nations. It, it didn't didn't do its job of keeping world peace, as we know, because then there was a World War II. But regardless, at the time, the League of Nations uh, forced a written declaration from the Iraqi government defining the Kurdish area. So there was some success there to a degree. Also during this time, Iraq was, again, a, a royal government, so anti-royal movements enlisted Kurds <clears throat> against the capital, Baghdad, through World War II. So basically, any Iraqi that was anti-monarchy at that point in time would use all of the disenfranchised people to include the Kurds to try and fight for uh, uh, an overthrow of the monarchy. So the Kurds actually helped um, challenge the capital during this period of time. The July Revolution breaks out in 1958 as we're kind of flying through some of this history here. And the July Revolution is important in Iraqi history. Again, if we had more time, I would I'd probably do this history, but we don't. But it basically overthrew the Hashemite dynasty of Abdel Karim Qasim in 1958. And it facilitated the aforementioned Mustafa Barzani coming back from the Soviet Union. So it, well, I shouldn't say coming back because he, he left Iran, but now he's coming back to Iraq and and this July revolution facilitated that the i don't want to say the second but very quickly after he gets back Barzani forms one of the important parties that we're going to be talking about basically for the rest of this this situation he forms the Kurdish Democratic Party so from this point forward I'll call them the KDP it is the Kurdish Democratic Party for my listeners here for our listeners but it was directed he did, he's not necessarily the director is uh, directed by another uh, person named Ibrahim Ahmad Qasim, though, couldn't keep the promises he made to the Kurds um, and others, and eventually he, too, was overthrown. Uh, the Ramadan Revolution was led by a group of people that are now, of course, very famous in Iraqi history called the Ba'ath Party and other malcontents. The Kurds, again, are once again, were, excuse me, are once again called upon to help, and on February 8, 1963, do so. Um, the Ba'ath Party, of course, is successful. Uh, as we all know, and uh, the Kurds begin to call for autonomy because of the help that they provided, not just in the Ramadan revolution, but in the July revolution of Abdul uh, Karim Qasim. Making a self-correction here, Abdul Karim Qasim is who is put in power during the July revolution, not removed from power. I mean, damn, like knowing nothing about the history up until what you have just been saying, their calls for autonomy, the fact that no one along this entire history was like, you know what, guys, you you do deserve some autonomy. Like, what the fuck? Seriously. Well, I mean, and the, I mean, we can even see it today, like fighting ISIS and so on and so forth, and nobody's doing anything to help, right? Like, it's ridiculous. Okay, anyway. Uh, the calls for autonomy begin, and they're led by uh, Ismit Sharif Vanli, um, which was the envoy at large of the Command Council of the Revolution. So from the Kurdish, gen, gen, uh, Kurdish Journal, I'm going to read. We, we love our primary sources here, and I haven't really done, done one in this long history because I was trying to just speed through it. But this one's important. This one comes from June 11th, 1965. Again, this is Ismit Sharif Anli, and this is his call for autonomy. This is what he wants. I'm going to go through these quickly. Number one to readmit the official use of the historical name of our country by creating an autonomous vilayet of Kurdistan with five Kurdish provinces, which basically, that was a way of saying vilayet of Kurdistan, like the rule of, of Kurdistan. Number two, 
The pillars of this autonomy will be a Kurdish legislative body, freely elected by all the population of Kurdistan, and an executive council issued from that body and responsible before it. What do you think of that? Real quickly, because so I, there, there's, me, a, there's a bunch of points here, but I don't want to just go through them all and then make you like think about them. I want to. Like, so let me situate, help me situate myself geographically. So are they calling for all of Iraq to become the Kurdish state, or they no, want a part? No, the part that they live in. Oh, okay. I mean, that's reasonable. Like, what? I don't understand. But because we're going to get to like these other ideas of like democratic and federalism yeah. and stuff, and but this is not that, right? Let's let's right. So, so what we see here are pillars of this autonomy will be a Kurdish legislative body, freely elected by all the population of Kurdistan, and an executive council issued from that body and responsible for it. Now that might not fit democratic and federalism perfectly, but it is democratic for sure. But it is democratic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it sounds like kind of like republic. They want a Kurdish republic. I mean, that's what they want. Okay. Number three, matters of education, justice, police, administration, tobacco, agriculture, forests, municipalities, labor, and social legislation will be in the Kurdish territory of the competence of the autonomous authorities. Defense and foreign relations will remain in the hands of the Iraqi central government. That's huge. So basically, a lot of our social, cultural, and economic things are ours. However, what are they willing to cede? Well, I think it's funny that, like, I'm listening to this from, and I'm trying to adopt the perspective of, like, a world power, and I'm like, yeah, police and courts got it, and then you said tobacco, and I was like, eh, like, gotta wind that in, because, like, that's what, obviously, the world power is like, you're not taking the economic, like, we can't have that, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like I said, and they were even willing to concede on this one, defense and foreign relations in the hands of the Iraqi government. You guys can still have that one. Which is that, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. All right, number four, taxes were collect, will be collected locally will be spent locally. Taxes collected locally will be spent locally. But the largest revenue of Iraq, oil royalties, revenues of ports, customs and airports should be shared. And the Kurdish part in them will be proportional to the population of Kurdistan to that of the Iraqi Republic. That's a pretty strong demand, but it makes sense pragmatically. I mean, from the Iraqi perspective, like obviously you're not having that. But yeah, it's not like super unreasonable. Kurdish conscripts will accomplish their military service in the Iraqi army, but in Kurdistan. If the central government wishes to send more uh, troops to Kurdistan, this can be done only with the agreement of the request of the Kurdish autonomous authorities. Martial law can be proclaimed in Kurdistan by the Iraqi government only in the same conditions. This should be understood as a guarantee against any other Iraqi aggression in Kurdistan in the future. So, like, I'm listening to this, and, like, it sounds reasonable. Like, it's not super ridiculous. And I'm wondering if, like, Iraqi leadership at this point is kicking themselves for not taking this deal. Like, just they could have done it and been done with it. It sounds fine. The last point, number six. On the other hand, the last article of the program of the Kurdistan Democratic Party says that in the case of unity between Iraq and any Arab country, the people of Iraqi Kurdistan should exercise their right for self-determination. The reason in the 65 this is a threat is because there was actual chances for Iraq to become unified with other states. There were numerous attempts at this from uh, Egypt and Nasser's uh, attempt at a United Arab Republic to things going on with, uh, well, I almost said Transjordan, like it was still the mandate system, but Jordan. So that's interesting that that if there was a unification effort, that Kurdistan could exercise its right for self determination. I mean, it's 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 a fair demand, but Iraq, obviously, because of the natural resources in the region, was never going to go for that. 
I mean, also, I think had they accepted this, we know that it wouldn't have lasted like they laid it out here. That would have been short-lived for sure. But it's not super unreasonable. I mean, that's a reasonable demand for a group of people that have, like, this is their land. Yeah. Well, and as became customary, again, it's predictable. The Ba'ath Party never fulfilled the Kurds' wishes, even after helping them uh, uh, even rise to power in Baghdad. And resistance immediately resumed, uh, Kurdish resistance in Iraq. With financial and military support from the Shah, so the leader of Iran— Israel, the United States, the Kurds in Iraq engaged Iraqi troops in protracted guerrilla warfare. Now think about that like alliance right there. Now that alliance made sense in like the the 60s and 70s because for those that don't know at the time, again, the Shah, the king of Iran was a U.S. puppet. So at that time, Iran and Israel were kind of forced to to work together on things. So it shouldn't be any surprise. But again, if we look at it this way, again, the United States rich history of meddling in all of these places, you know, our audience may not know. They might think that the Gulf War is the first time the United States had like its hands all messed up in places like Iraq. I'm, I'm Right here in the 60s and 70s, it's clear as day, right? They're actually, in this case, supporting the Kurds to try and challenge the Ba'ath Party. I mean, I'm, you rattled off that list of allies. I'm questioning how they weren't successful backed by all those countries. Yeah, I, I, well... It's, I mean, they were successful in a way. Uh, this is where we get the iconography of these guerrilla war warriors, right? The Peshmergas is what they're called. And again, I'm assuming a lot of the audience has probably heard of them. And again, they have this very rich iconography, the Peshmergas, not just as guerrilla fighters, but as a way of life, right? These, these, these revolutionary or liberation, uh, basically soldiers that are willing to put everything into establishing a Kurdistani state. And it does separate the Peshmergas from the later group of people that we're going to be talking about, uh, the PKK, not necessarily looking for a state entity, but it's interesting. Um, and the Peshmergas, of course, are under the tutelage of leaders like Barzani, who we talked about. Uh, a new agreement comes out in Algiers uh, in 1975, uh, of course, between Iraq and Iran, and it basically ended the Shah, the Shah of Iran, again, the dictator, his patronage patronage of the Kurds, and it threw the KDB, KDP into discord. So basically, Iraq and Iran say enough meddling in each other's affairs uh, in Algiers, that's where they did, in Algeria, that's where they decide to hold this meeting in 1975, and basically, without the, the Shah's help, what money, weapons, etc., which he He's actually, they're not even Iran's. He's getting them from the Israelis in the United States anyway. But regardless, without this type of help, the KDP is thrown into discord. It ends up having to be restructured under Mustafa's son and, of course, a very important player to this day, Masoud Barsani. Um, and a rival party is also formed because of this discord. So we have a new party introduced into the Iraqi Kurdistani um, uh, goals for autonomy here. The rival party is formed by a man named Jalal Talabani. He was a former ally of Mustafa back in 1975. He forms the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. So recap, because the, 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 the acronyms are going to start coming fast and furious now. KDP... Original Democratic like the Party. OGs. Huh, yeah. Okay. And now PUK come out in 75 as like a rival party. And again, they're called the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. Even that the wording there is. So what was their beef with each other? 
Um, they didn't. Talibani, at least at first, would argue that the Barzani, at least the Barzani's weren't going far enough. And basically, after uh, it's going to transfer to the Sun, quote unquote, Masoud Barzani, Jalal Talibani, being a little bit like a former ally of Mustafa, didn't necessarily trust um, the the new leadership of the KDP and saw this this discord as an opportunity to form a rival group. After, uh, well. <sighs> How do I do this quickly? I can't, so I'll just say it. Iran had a major revolution in 19, uh, towards the end of 1978 through 1979. Hopefully our listeners are aware of it. We will definitely be doing an episode on that. That one's very near and dear to my heart, but uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. The revolution is eventually won, um, and the people that rise to prominence there uh, is the revolutionary or revolutionary Islamic government, and there is no more king, and it must be stated that the loss really hit the West hard, so hard that they supported a new guy, a new sheriff in town in Iraq to invade Iran and try and basically try and seize the opportunity of a recent, you know, revolutionized country, basically take it. So uh, I guess I said that kind of awkwardly. Let me be blunt about it. Basically, the West begins to support Saddam Hussein and his leadership in the Ba'ath Party in Iraq. They support him because, again, he has plans to invade Iran while it's weak. Again, fresh off a revolution. And so this starts the Iran-Iraq War, which basically lasts from 1980 to 88, and it is a bloody war. Uh, approximates are between 2 and 3 million casualties on both sides. We also know this leads to horrific actions on both sides. And, of course, the irony is that the West eventually plays both sides, even though initially they're arming Saddam Hussein with things like mustard gas, which he will use. Um, they also eventually, over time, begin underground arming the Iranians, hoping hoping for mutual destruction and a power vacuum that the West can fill, again, namely the United States. Well, isn't this like the Contra affair? Eventually the Contra or- affair comes out of it. So they're selling missiles to Iran to hopefully release these hostages that they think they have influence over by Hezbollah in Lebanon. That's like part of the goal there. And then, of course, they're taking the money from the Iranians that they're getting for selling them the missiles and then funneling that to Nicaragua to fund Contras there to challenge the socialist Sandinista regime. It is a big mess. Basically, the Reagan administration and all of the cronies there committed what we would call high treason, and yet for some reason here in the West, nobody cares. Nobody cares that this man broke with the Constitution. Nobody cares, and and, and his cronies broke with the Constitution. Nobody cares uh, that he went against, of course, the Senate and the House. It's 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 gross, but whatever. That's a whole different different topic that I don't want to get sidetracked with right now. Anyway, as far as what concerns us here regarding the Kurds, the Iran-Iraq war, like I said, with that many casualties, and of course they're stuck in the middle, they're in the middle of these two nation states that are at war with each other, it took a heavy toll on the Kurds in both countries. Basically, the Kurds were used, and their region, what we would call Kurdistan, is used as the combat buffer zone between the two states. So they're the ones that are really suffering uh, in the Iran-Iraq war. Iraq, of course, first used Iranian Kurds in 1981 to fight Iranian, uh, the Iranian revolutionary gods or the Pastoran, um, near Kurdish cities. So basically, Iraq would fund Kurds in Iran to fight against Iran. Does that make sense? Um, and then Iran's Kurdish strategy actually proved more successful, though, because they began to support Barzani and the KDP and actually, of course, the other party, the PUK as well. They supported both Kurdish parties to fight the Ba'ath. Uh, regime in Baghdad. Turkey's watching from the sidelines here. 
And they are super scared of the Kurdish success, especially in Iraq and especially with the backing of Iran. And they end up deploying troops against the Peshmergas. So Turkey gets involved and their only goal, when Turkey deploys, they deploy into Iraq to fight the Kurds in Iraq. They're not fighting the Iraqis. They're fighting the Kurds in Iraq, the Peshmergas. So they're not even in like the Iran-Iraq conflict. They're just straight going in to take advantage of the situation. And try, they're, they're worried that the Kurds are carving out their own little zone here in Iraq. They're worried about that because they're, they're worried what their tur- what the Kurds in Turkey will end up doing, seeing this as inspiration. And again, when we get to like the PKK concurrently, there are things going on, but I'm, I'm leaving them off right now because they get their own little, little story here in a minute. Probably not a minute. But regardless, they, they, they get their own story. Okay. Anyway. Uh, tragically, the success of the KDP and the PUK on the battlefield prompted Saddam Hussein um, to to do one of the things he's most famous for, to use chemical weapons. And again, I, I, I must be stressed, it's been declassified now. These are bought from the West. Uh, United States, potentially UK, they supplied him with these gases, and he gasses his own citizens. Okay, case, so let me, let me make sure I understand this. The Ba'ath Party is funding... The KDP and the PUK to help them fight Iran. No, no, that's backwards. the uh, The Ba'ath Party was funding specifically Kurds in Iran who are not okay. The PUK so Iran is funding those two groups. Yeah, Got Iran it. is funding okay. those groups, and they're that makes winning. Sense now. The Kurds are winning in Iraq and pl- proving wildly crucial. So as a result of that, Hussein turns on them. Okay, got it. Yeah, and yep. so Hussein turns on his own Kurds and uses those chemical weapons uh, against his own citizens. Uh, one of the hallmark uh, events occurs in 1988. It's called the uh, Halabja Massacre. Uh, it's mustard gas, and at bare minimum, and I feel like this 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 figure is is hokey as shit, but it seems to be holding up across most Western sources. Uh, I, I can't find a good good census from the time period from other sources, but 5,000 people died at the uh, Halabja massacre. I just – that feels light to me, and I don't think it takes into account lingering effects of something like mustard gas, um, but yeah. So yeah, that's one of the more famous massacres that takes p- place. The United Nations, of course, at this point, it gets their attention just a little bit. They passed three rev- resolutions, quote-unquote, admonishing Iraq. But they don't do a whole lot to stop it, right? Admonishing Iraq is is something. Yeah, they don't ever do anything. And I'm going to tell you why. And this is going to be super gross. The reason the United Nations doesn't do more than pass three resolutions admonishing Iraq is because the United States serving on the Security Council prevented stronger measures against the Iraqi government. And my source on this, of course, is Antessar on that one, right? Like... I, I cannot stress this enough. At that time, the United States was allied with with Saddam Hussein. Now, that relationship is going to change in about a year. But at that time, that's they, they prevented stronger measures. Again, this is, this is what we would consider like a, a moral and ethical issue here, the use of mustard gas on a civilian population, and the United Nations is proposing to come down very hard on the Hussein regime, and it is the United States that keeps that from happening. Well, that's because he's their boy using their weapons. Like, oh my God. Um, eventually, uh, acceptance of resolution 598 is, is, or resolution 598 is accepted by Iran in July. 
1988. And after that, that resolution basically leads to a subsequent ceasefire. This ceasefire does actually not help the Iraqi Kurds because aside from the chemical gas or the chemical weapon situation, they, they were, the Peshmergas were holding their own against the Iraqi, uh, Iraqi military. So the fact that there's a ceasefire means basically they're also kind of done. Um, Amnesty International gets involved here, right? And they appeal to the United Nations on the continued attack after the ceasefire on Kurdish villages by the Iraqis. They used overwhelming force, including, and this is, uh, this is a quote, so, and I quote from Amnesty, Amnesty International, using overwhelming force, including chemical weapons, the mass killings are part of a systematic and deliberate policy by the Iraqi government to eliminate large numbers of Kurds. Or for lack of a better term, uh, Amnesty International basically is calling this genocide. Mm-hmm. An attempt to genocide. By 1989, over 60,000 Kurds fled to Turkey, which makes Turkey very nervous as well, but we'll get to that later. Untold thousands also make their way into Iran, and important, the ones that go to Iran are led by Barzani still and the KDP, so they seek refuge in Iran. So basically, many Kurds had to leave Iraq. So the PUK is holding strong. I don't have info on P- the PQK. I actually think PUK leadership might have ended up in Turkey because there, there are going to be different alignments here in a second that you're going to kind of see. Um, all of this kind of comes to a standstill briefly when the United States decides to get even further involved. They basically invade Iraq in 1990 through 91 because uh, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and we get the very famous Operation uh, Desert Storm. I, I guess it's not even that famous. It's famous that people know about it, but we actually don't. There's, there's not a lot of – I've noticed in a lot of uh, academic circles there's just not a lot of talk about it. It seems like overlooked. It's one of the overlooked conflicts in, in, in U.S. history. But regardless. Uh, I also am going to overlook it right now because we don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But it leads to, of course, more instability. Right after the war, and the United States, of course, is successful in, in this war in defeating uh, uh, the Rockies uh, out of Kuwait. Uh, they do not uh, very famously remove Saddam Hussein from power. That will come or attempt to uh, – well, it will come later. Um the post-war rebellion that takes place, though, is important. There is a rebellion after the Gulf War in the 90s, and this instability fueled a militant response. Opposition port parties begin to unite into another group called the Iraqi Kurdistan Front, or the IKF. This is important. So not necessarily PDK, or KDP, excuse me, or PUK. Now we have IKF, a militant party, and they forcefully gain control, importantly, in Erbil. Now, Erbil for, for, I don't know if you know this, but that's the capital right now of Iraqi Autonomous Kurdistan. So Erbil is, is, is taken by the IKF in the 90s. Well, so it, though the name, the way you described it implies that like the other two groups weren't militant, but it sounds like that they were. I mean, were. they're all militant, but I guess the IKF is arguing that since one's hanging out, loosely in Iran and another's hanging out loosely potentially in Turkey that the IKF is now going to take matters into its own hands. Got it. The IKF IKF organized elections for a regional parliament in May of 1992. The KDP and PUK who have both basically found their way back now that the IKF actually controls these cities. It controls Erbil, uh, Suli, and I can never pronounce it well, Suleimaniya and Duhak. Uh, KDP and PUK representatives make their way back in. So the IKF is kind of like a military front, but the KDP and PUK become more 
political parties now. They win 49% of the vote and gained 50 seats in a parliament that was established in 1992. Again, Erbil Erbil, uh, and the regions around it are kind of autonomous at this point. Regional governments are then formed with ministers, deputy ministers, and they are divided relatively evenly between the two parties. So they're just doing this. Like, Iraq is not cool with this, but what are they going to do? Like, they're, they're, they just lost a war to the United States. The party's weak. There are Sunni and Shia conflicts that Saddam Hussein is dealing with at that moment in time. So the Kurds are just seizing this opportunity. Opportunism is, like, huge for what we're, we're seeing here with this example with the Kurds. So not- after Desert Storm, Hussein is still in power, right? Yes, but dealing with rebellions. What did Desert Storm accomplish? It got uh, got Iraq out of Kurdistan or Kurdistan, Kuwait, Kuwait, yeah, okay. um, and 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 it accomplished a complete destruction of infrastructure, mm-hmm. like just and it was devastating. That that's actually one of the things that is overlooked here in the West. How devastating things like the Gulf War and then eventually the sanctions were on Iraq and then the mass bombing campaigns under the Clinton administration. Like it was. I, we eventually get the oil for food program and stuff like that. But it was like complete destabilization of the region. There's no defending uh, a Hussein regime. There's not, none of that. But he, there was not a lot of tools left for him to succeed with either, right? The, the United States wrecked that economy, just absolutely just destroyed it. And hundreds of thousands of people died. Like that's the thing we don't remember. Like when we do a casualty count of the Gulf War, the, we usually don't count like the aftermath of, of the consistent like sanctions, bombing programs, all that stuff that, that continued. Hundreds of thousands of people died in Iraq um, due to the actions of the United States. Um, anyway, friction escalated during this time period. It arose in 1994. And when I say friction, it escalated between the two parties. So infighting in the parties really becomes a problem in 94. So it only took two years for this to be an issue. And what are the two parties again? The PUK and the KDP. Where's the other party? The IKF is not necessarily like a party. It's it's like a militant wing. The so Iraqi it's like the person. EZLN of Zapatistas? <clears throat> I don't know if I want to make that direct connection, <laughs> but in a way, in a way. Um, now, one of the reasons the infighting rose, or at least it is proposed that it rose by some of the sources that I, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast here, is because of the United States sanctions and internal bath sanctions. So Iraq is being sanctioned by the United States. So the Iraqi government is, or the Iraqi economy is in the shitter. Then Iraq, on top of that, is sanctioning Kurdistan. So they're dealing with two times the sanctions. And it is wreaking havoc on the well-being of the Kurdistani people. Not just their economy, but like, like health, water. I mean, it is a huge problem. And so this is still just an autonomous region within Iraq. Like they don't have their own. So they recognize themselves as autonomous. Clearly, the Hussein regime does not, nor does any country around them. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the way that Saddam Hussein is deciding to deal with them is through sanctioning them the way he is being sanctioned by the West as well. I just struggle every time I read about this or talk about it because like we use the term Kurdistan and that implies that it's like a state when clearly it's not. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the party, the party, uh, infighting even led to violence between the parties as they competed for influence in major cities like Erbil, uh, through 1996. And there are actually a lot of Kurdish civilian casualties. The United States eventually steps in and finally brokers a peace just between the Kurdistani parties in 1998. 
So that's important for us to understand that the, the situation had gotten so bad. And again, I'm not talking just like a poor economy. I'm talking like people, you know, like there's food shortages, right? Like there's, there's, it's, it's huge. Would it have been this unstable if there were no sanctions first, A, by the United States, B, by then the Ba'ath regime? Who knows? Well, if you were the Ba'ath party, why wouldn't you step in and just like fund both sides for mutual destruction at this point? I don't have an answer to that. I really don't. I mean, they maybe they did. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Unfortunately, other things take place in the 19, 1998. Specifically, in uh, infantile economics begin to cause issues, and this is something that that I did a lot of work on. I I, I did uh, master's work on the infantile and how it applied to Egypt. So it was much to my surprise when Egypt was not the only petri dish for the infantile. I did not know that until I did this research and found out that they attempted it in this Kurdistani region, infantile. That basically translates, and excuse my Arabic, but it basically translates as open door economic policy. Just jump right into the global market and see how that goes during a neoliberal era. Well, of course it's going to go awful. You're entering into the market behind the curve. Behind the curve, of course, your your parent country, quote-unquote, of Iraq, and, of course, behind the world at large. It never goes well. There is no equal competition in globalized capitalism. We know this. So immediately, this leads to more issues. And one of the biggest issues is rampant inflation and debt. That always seems to happen when these smaller states try and enter an open-door economic policy. Hey, we're here to help, IMF, World Bank. Just take out a couple of loans. We'll see how this goes. It never goes well. Um, and so the Kurdistanis get stuck in, in basically this, this neoliberal nightmare. Then a program comes that might help them out a little bit. It's called the Oil for Food program, which became famous here in the United States. It's basically a program that was co-opted by the parties, and it does gain them stability because, again, you can get oil, basically exchanging oil for food. And once people are less hungry, they're less cranky. That, that, that's, that's fine. But it becomes at the cost of democracy. So is this a U.S. program? Yeah, the Oil for Food program was a U.S.-led Western program for all of Iraq. I mean, not it's just, just my first reaction is just fucking gross. That like, yeah, we'll give you food, but you have to give us oil. Right. Instead of just like, oh, your people are dying? Our bad. We have plenty of food. Here is some. Yeah. We're such dicks. Yeah. Awful. Awful. Anyway, Kurdistan being part of Iraq did get food because of the Oil for Food program. Um... But like I said, it came at the cost of democracy. There were no elections held between 1992 and 2005. So basically you have these same people getting kind of static in these power positions. Like was that a policy that like you could only accept the programs you stopped elections or what? To the best of my knowledge, there wasn't necessarily specific language, but there might have been. Um, I guess I've never read all of the policy in all of its nuances. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know specifically for the Western powers, they wanted that kind of stability so that that, that the pipeline of oil would be remain consistent. Well, I also wonder if that was part of the, when they negotiated peace between the two parties also. Well, yeah, in 98 for sure. Well, and, but, but see the oil for food program was also for all of Iraq, not just, uh, the Kurdistani region. Um, long story short, uh, let's keep moving. United States invades Iraq again. Uh, Decade or so later, in 2003, under highly manufactured auspices, uh, I don't know if anyone's found those WMDs yet, and we sure as shit know that that there were uh, no, there was no connection between uh, the Iraqi government and what took place uh, on September 11th. So, 
I, I don't know. It just happened. Apparently, it just magically happened and it cost thousands and thousands and thousands of people their lives. But, you know, who's counting at this point? Um, the post-war, after the war, we know again how it goes. Uh, actually not nearly as successful, quote unquote, from the U.S. perspective on the, uh, on the, uh, Gulf War. It doesn't go as successful as the Gulf War. And, uh, and there is still, massive instability in the region again this is now where we at 16 years later it's 2019 16 years later like still but hey uh g-dub got to uh say mission accomplished on an aircraft carrier or a battleship or whatever the fuck he was on so you know power i suppose anyway i have, I have lots of thoughts on this but but i'm gonna keep going although i do want to this is when they got hussein finally right they do yeah saddam hussein okay. is eventually is eventually Not that that's worth it i just want to throw that in there. yeah it's during this invasion yeah um, after the war, we have the further entrenchment for, of these two parties in Iraqi Kurdistan, and they were able to use oil revenue from occupied Baghdad to do so. So basically they're getting revenue now and Baghdad is occupied by the coalition of the willing. God, just that makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Whatever. Yeah. So Baghdad's occupied and this oil revenue is helping these two parties further entrench themselves in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, which is, it's, it's interesting. This help for Kurdistan helps them dodge the infrastructural devastation and economic hit that the rest of Iraq dealt with. Iraq is still a mess to this day, but Kurdistan is not because of the oil revenue and arguably the stability of the two parties. Even though like democracy kind of took a back seat, Kurdistan was, was, relatively god i hate even i don't even want to use the word stable compared to the, the the privilege we live with here in the west but in comparison to the rest of iraq more stable um yeah anyway they eventually are able to negotiate a new constitution excuse me not just the kurds everybody's involved in this in a new iraqi constitution i should be clear here um, and, uh, again, a lot of this is brokered by the United States and the other Western allies that decided to get involved. This new constitution with a new government firmly recognizes regional autonomy, uh, by the deft maneuvering between, of course, the Sunni and Shia Arab blocs. What I mean by that is basically that the main point of contention in Iraq after, uh, the United States invasion and subsequent destabilization of the country was between the Sunni and Shia rifts. And the United States, and again, other Western powers, and of course, other Eastern powers, Iran definitely has an involvement here, are jockeying for position, again, based on these uh, religious sectarian lines, Sunni, Shia in this case. And so the Kurds are able to maneuver both of those sides um, and negotiate a new constitution. I may be arguing uh, that they might, that their stability might represent stability that could be um, spread throughout Iraq during this time. That did not happen, but maybe. And so a new government is recognized. So we now have like, what is this, our fourth acronym? The Kurdistani Regional Government, the KRG, is established um, after the invasion. And the PUK leader, Talabani, becomes the president of Iraq itself in 2005. So the Kurds are making great headway. For for the for for the Kurdistani cause, the U.S. invasion was again an opportunity, and they seized the day. Now it goes really horribly for all the other Iraqis. I will not necessarily try and and polish this turd that this invasion in two thousand three has a silver lining. I suppose unless you're a Kurd, but but at what cost? I don't know. 
Um, after 2005, electoral politics replaced armed conflict in Iraqi Kurdistan, both internally and in the national government. Uh, Barzani is still doing his thing and won back-to-back elections as the regional president. So at one point in time, you have Barzani of P, of, of KDP in charge of, uh, of the, of Kurdistan, the Kurdistani regional government, and Talabani as the Iraqi president. So things are going really well at that point in time for the well, Kurds. So pause for a second. So with the new constitution and now Talabani as the leader, the president, do they formally recognize the autonomy of the Kurdish region? It, it has a Kurdistani regional government, but everybody on the outside, and this is where I'm going with this, to include the United States, the other Western allies, uh, Russia, Turkey, Iran, do not want to get on board with saying there is a Kurdistan. They don't, they are, everyone wants to stop short of nation state. But internally in Iraq, do they recognize this region as, I mean, it has its own government at this point, right? Yes, it is operating relatively autonomously. Okay. And I say relatively because there are different people meddling from outside. Mm-hmm. Um, the Iraqi government's not meddling all as much because Talibani is running the show at least for a little bit. He's not the first president. Uh, why am I blanking his name? Malik, Malachi, Maliki? Nah, regardless, it doesn't matter. Um, but there are uh, people with interests that are operating from the outside. So I wouldn't say 100% autonomy, but none of our examples will ever be like 100% autonomous. Um Parliament during Barzani's regime also added two more bonus bonus years to his his terms, which is interesting how popular he had become, um, again, as this former leader of the Peshmergas. And then a new party formed in opposition to the KRG, Goran, which basically translates into English as change. A new party forms during this time period, which is interesting because they're, they're, why would this party form when they were achieving so much more success than they had? But they do. They form an opposition to the Kurdistani regional government and its years of two-party nepotism and corruption, to use their words. That's the issue they see. It leads to, in Iraqi Kurdistan, numerous protests, demonstrations, and it actually even led to a legalist crackdown in the 2000s by the KRG. So the KRG becomes oppressive on other Kurds that are questioning its leadership. Discontent, discontent grew in the region through 2013. Even accusations of like rigged elections, voter intimidation, and propaganda keep the KDP and PUK power hegemony alive regionally and nationally. So there's discontent, even in this quote-unquote autonomous region that has achieved more than any Kurdistani region it achieved in the better part of a couple of centuries. There's still discontent. I I don't know what that says. I don't. I, I mean, what do you think? Like, I mean, we could argue that that's just like the. Until they have full autonomy, then that's going to be the case, You one would assume. you know. But even I mean? in autonomy, you have these two entrenched parties in their leadership. Like, I've been talking about Barzani now since, like, whatever, like the 50s. Like, I mean... Yeah, but maybe that's probably the problem that they see, you know what I mean? Like, Would that... So let's get, let's get off track for one second. What does this mean for stateless society projects? Like, that's where we want to make the connections. These, these examples are cool, and I can go on and on about history, but, like, what's the... I mean, is this a danger zone for stateless societies that they need to be wary of? I mean, it's kind of weird because their leadership had survived so many different periods where, like, in the beginning, it wasn't democratic at all. He was just a charismatic whatever that created this party. Then it was democratic. Then the democracy was put on hold. Then it was back. So, like, it's weird to think about. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. 
So if you're an opposition party, you're thinking like, I mean, let's be blunt. Democracy sounds great. And, but if a party stays in power for an incredibly long time, you're going to start seeing opposition, regardless of whether or not they're democratically elected. And who knows how like real democracy this actually yeah. is. You no, know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's what they were being accused of. Again, rigged elections, voter intimidation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's interesting to note that Barzani in charge of the regional government and Talibani, at least briefly in charge of the Iraqi government, differ on the international allies where they got their support, which shows again the difference in the parties, the KDP and the PUK. So, uh, to give you an example, Barzani, um, had briefly aligned himself with Turkey, which is super weird because he had kept finding himself in like the Soviet Union. Well, not him, but in like Iran and stuff like that. And Talibani ends up aligning himself with Iran, Syria, and who we're going to be talking about, uh, the PKK. So the Kurdistani Workers Party. Again, they, 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 they get their entire own section here. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to fill in on that, but I'll, I definitely will be coming back to them. Um, Talibani, however, had a stroke in 2012, and that kind of removes him from the scene. Um, and then some Goran members, again, that's that opposition party called Change, they end up getting some members elected into offices, and tensions cool briefly. So who gets elected president? Someone from... Oh, the- after Talibani in Iraq? I actually do not know. Yeah, someone it. from the PUK? No, it, it's no longer occurred. Oh, got it. Yeah. Okay. Um... The KRG crackdown did, again, garner the attention of Amnesty International for perpetual crackdowns of their critics. So Amnesty International, funny, came in to protect the Kurds back during the gassing campaigns under Saddam Hussein. Now also they're trying to prevent the KRG from performing crackdowns against its own people. Now, no one's accusing the KRG of using mustard gas or anything along those lines. Just, again, violent intimidation tactics against opposition parties. And Amnesty International is, is, is watching, so it's interesting to know. And the KRG is full of and being led by the KDP. And the UK, about 50-50. Oh, okay. Yeah. Economically, the KRG and important party actors have struggled mightily over these recent years with transparency. Though there's no doubt that the region is doing quote-unquote well. I mean, economically, it is on the rise. It is stable. It's avoided the sectarian violence that the rest of Iraq has had to deal with. There are numerous theories as to why. Uh, some argue oil is not enough to create this stability. Some argue that there is an illicit drug uh, uh, trafficking situation going on through Kurdistan. Um, of course, various opiates, right? That would be coming in from from the neighboring countries. That should be no surprise to any of the listeners. But again, I am not willing to take a stand on it. The sources on this is, are, are murky at best. Are like drugs involved in the stability and creating this economic, quote-unquote, boon in the Kurdistani region? I don't know. Um... Who's in? Who's in on the stability of Kurdistan? Um, the United States, Baghdad, other Kurds, all, I don't know. Like, again, everybody's hesitant on just saying this is a country. Um, it is part of Iraq style. It is still part of Iraq. It still has the KRG running the show. Uh, it's still under the tutelage of two primary parties, the KDP probably with a slight majority over the PUK, um, at, at least in terms of support. So... Even if it's not its own nation state, is it like similar to like a province or something? Like, does it have its own status as that? Yeah, I mean, under the constitution that we talked about after the war, like, I mean, technically, yeah, it does, but 
but their goal was a state, which is kind of funny that we're using them as a as a as a as an example for stateless society. But it's not necessarily only them. We're actually using them to juxtapose against the PKK uh, and eventually Rojava that we're going to be talking about. Um, but I mean, it is interesting. Ideologically, since 2003, sectarian violence between Sunnis and Shia in Arab areas has risen, but Arab Kurd violence has actually declined since the establishment of the zone. Um, and Arab nationalism eventually gave way to religious division, which is, again, interesting. I'm going to kind of finish up here by going through some of the more recent events. Outside destabilization by the United States and Russia um, in Iraq and Syria led, of course, to the rise of uh, Daesh, or better known as uh, Islamic State, going by both uh, ISIS or ISIL, uh, numerous names uh, here in the West. Needless to say, everybody in the West is, is, is always super scared and have certain feelings, and that's fine. I, I don't want to necessarily dig into this, but I must stress, and I will stress this over and over again, the only reason this, this group this came into being is because of Western meddling. I must stress that. Like, it, they gave rise the opportunity. Shoot, some of the calls for things like a caliphate, like, those things were unestablished by the West back of the day. So I must stress this. That, like, if people want to know why this thing is here, why, why this party is here, and why they're using these violent tactics for aims that are highly questionable at best, um, and downright deplorable at worst, it's because of the Western destabilization. Like, I must stress this. Like, the more the West continues to meddle in various regions of the world, the more they produce these types of results. So I do want to – that needs to be out there. Regardless, ISIS is a thing. Um, but their rise contrasts the more secular Kurdish nationalism in a similar reason, right? Like, they're sharing these various regions. The conflict put the Kurds in basically a new transnational public sphere. Uh, not my words. They are tied, tied to the ideology basically during this time period. Um, and based on, uh, the rise in existence of ISIS, Kurdish replaced Arabic as the main language of public communication and education. And then ironically enough, English actually replaced Arabic as the second language many Kurds would eventually learn during this time period. Um, also it's interesting that the romanticized uh, traditional nationalist narratives of guerrilla struggle and martyrdom against the Husseins has actually not carried over amid their current war with the Islamic State. That is super interesting to me that the Peshmergas and the guerrilla warfare were such like a rallying point against um, the Iraqis and eventually, of course, when we get to the BKK against the Turks and stuff like that. But they're not using the same iconography against ISIS. And I guess I didn't lay that out clearly. The rise of ISIS meant that the Kurds would also be forced to fight ISIS. I, I should just flat out have said that. I guess I just assumed, but yeah. Um, Islamic State eventually also used the political discord between Barzani uh, Maliki, which was the Iraqi president at first, to seize uh, the city of Fallujah. And then they, of course, they surprised the world by actually winning and seizing Mosul in January of 2014, which is what really got the world's attention is when ISIS actually seized Mosul. Um, and so the KRG Peshmergas used this opportunity to take the oil-rich Kirkuk region. Um, and they, 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 they had this like interesting like mantra that they would use to motivate themselves to take Kirkuk, which is Kirkuk, uh, Kudsi Kurdistan, which is basically Kirkuk is Kurdistan's Jerusalem. So they basically use this mantra to argue that the Kurds needed to take this, or the Kurds needed to take the Kirkuk, yeah, I can't even speak, too much K. The Kirkuk region, because of its historical relevance to the people. That's why the Jerusalem thing, thing is in there. 
Although uh, I want to stress, like, it's not just the people in the area, it's humanity overall, right? And What do you mean? As far as this region being crucial to the history of human beings and the cradle of Kirkuk? civilization, etc. The whole yes. region, yeah. Yeah, the whole region. Like, this yeah. is, this is, this is the cradle, yes, the cradle of civilization. Well, I um, think it's weird that, like, ISIS destroying all these monuments, etc. is on the news all the time, and people are like, oh, that sucks for them. Well, it sucks for human beings. Like, it's the history of civilization. I must also stress, and, and I, I, ISIS is, is wildly problematic for, for destroying all of these various monuments and, of course, uh, non, non-Sunni Islamic uh, places of worship, so other groups, uh, Sufi, Shia, etc. But we're ignorant if we think U.S. and British and Russian bombs are not doing similar things. Oh, for sure. So, mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of blame to go around um, regarding that. Okay. Uh, okay, anyway, Baghdad hates the fact that the uh, Peshmergas are able to seize uh, uh, the Kirkuk region because, again, it's oil-rich, but they have no way of stopping it. Like, they are just not strong enough to do anything about it. Um, and then this is where uh, IS, or the Islamic State, fucks up royally. They then began to attack Kurdish territories, and that's not going to go well for them. Um, they attacked a lot in Sinjar, uh, which led to at least a, a, a initially a refugee crisis, um, as they already had numerous people, because this also is coinciding with the Arab Spring. So um, Syrian refugees are also flooding the region. So basically, you have this mass refugee crisis in the region. New refugees end up showing up uh, in parts of Iraqi Kurdistan. Yazidis, Christians, other small ethnic groups find themselves here. The Islamic State is kind of funneling them, basically testing the Kurdistani regional government's ability to protect persecuted minorities. So the IS are funneling a lot of these refugees there. Um, this also coincides with the emergence of like our, one of our key topics, which gets its own, you know, episode, the emergence of Rojava. This is coinciding with that. So when we get to that, I want, I want the listeners to keep that in mind, which is a rival, uh, uh, uh group at this moment in time. So the PYD, YPG, YPJ, YPJ, I'll break those all down in a future episode, um, in the next episode. And they're all, of course, operating under the guidance and tutelage of the PKK. Um, I do know that 5,000 PKK guerrillas happen to be transferred to Rojava during this exact time period when IS is engaging with uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. So that's important to note that they seize this opportunity. The PKK kind of watching sees this opportunity to move their guerrillas um, into Rojava, into Syria. Um, and they're getting support, the PKK, from Iran. So that's interesting. We see the reemergence of the PKK in Syria, which becomes a problem for Bar, uh, which might become a problem for Barzani and the KRG ambition. The reason I say it might be a problem is, ideologically speaking, Rojava so far is taking things so much more radical than Iraqi Kurdistan. It's making the Barzani regime at this point in time, uh, even though he's not president anymore, look very conservative. And a lot of Kurds are finding support, and that support is going towards Rojava, PKK, again, all of the others, PYD, etc. So again, they're now like, on the international stage, they're the stars, no longer autonomous Iraq. Does that make sense? Okay. 
Peshmergas during this time end up backing off Rojava and then, of course, uh, uh, fight against uh, uh, is the Islamic State, allowing the PKK and the YB, YPG to win the hearts and minds of the local and global audience. That's so huge. When the Peshmergas back off, like at first, they're like the heroes fighting the Islamic State. Now it's the PKK fighting the Islamic State. And even though they cross paths, they are two different groups. Why didn't they join forces against ISIS? We don't know yet. So, interestingly enough, never mind. I don't even want to reveal the, any of the source on this stuff. Basically, um, let's just say I tried to get somebody that knew the actual boots on the ground uh, situation to come in and talk specifically about this incident, and they, they could not. Um, why PKK, Peshmergas, uh, uh, YPG, etc. are all kind of operating in this sometimes loose alliance, sometimes not alliance, sometimes contested situation is apparently more complex than, than, than people are willing to like, again, dig deep into right this second. I guess it's just still too current. Um, I know that might not be like the answer everyone wants to hear, but I, I tried to get more clear answers on this and could not. Um, Anyway, like I said, the heroism of the PKK and the YPG becomes really evident in the Kobani resistance movement, which was all over the news for a while. Um, and it's at this point in time we see a new cult of personality competition break out between Barzani and a person we're going to spend a lot of the next episode talking about, Abdullah Ocalan. Um, and again, all of the, they're all a hot topic, but I must stress that Rojava becomes the hotter topic. And Iraqi Kurdistan, again, is taking a back seat. Maybe it's old news. Maybe they're not radical enough. Um, but it's important. The good news for the KRG on Barzani is the Peshmergas do work hard with the Iraqi government to eventually retake Mosul and firmly put the Islamic State on the run as of 2016. The operation they launched is called We Are Coming uh, Nineveh. Uh, in 2017, an independence referendum, and this is the most recent news. Well, it's not the most recent news. It's 2017. But real big news. The referendum ends with 93 to 94% of people in the KRG in favor of secession from Iraq in a autonomous country. That referendum, again, was in 2017. Hmm. I mean, is this like Brexit or is this like legit 93%? Well, this, yeah, that is debatable. Like, again, they've been accused by like Goran of like rigged elections and so on and so forth. Um, the PUK does refuse. So the PUK is, uh, is, has become a minority party at this point in time in, in uh, the KRG. Countless international actors, basically everybody, refuses to recognize the 2017 independence re referendum. Their Iraqi government had invaded. They retook the Kirkuk region um, with no support from the United States or other Kurdish allies coming to help them out. Uh, and it's during this time, after these uh, this 2017 independence referendum and the successive uh, uh, breaking of ties with the United States and then the allowance of the Iraqi government invasion, that Barzani has officially, officially stepped down as the uh, president. And the referendum has put on, even in the KRG, what is called a freeze. It's on hold. And that is Iraqi Kurdistan in a nutshell. What are your thoughts? So much information. Like I said, I, I know, like it was like a kind of information. I've, I'm actually sad about it now. It might have been information overkill, but no, I think it was great. Like I said, I didn't know any of the history of like this region and these people for sure. So I think that was awesome. It's interesting to tie it all together of like, you know, the Iraqi invasion and the Kurds role there and bring it up to modern day and the current status of 
curds in Iraq, etc. Yeah, I think it was great. So as far as like, as we kind of close this one out, I think uh, at this point, there's we, we can't tack on PKK and stuff like that. Um, what are your thoughts regarding like this example for, for stateless society? I mean, it, it just doesn't qualify with all of our like rigorous boxes and check marks. And uh, again, preview, PKK, Rojava, they might qualify a little bit better, but there was success here and there were certain success, successes. I mean, as far as like, yeah, true, they don't have internationally recognized autonomy, but as far as, you know, carving out their own space, getting their own government within their own country, like, yeah, for sure, they were successful here. And, you know, I mean, we're completely naive if we think that every single person in every geographical area with every single ethnicity and religion and et cetera, et cetera, and history is going to be able to carve out their own stateless society. That's obviously very naive that we should probably just be celebrating the fact that they have some kind of autonomy after this long and rich history of oppression, et cetera, from various different actors across the globe throughout time. So what about like the, all the accusations now of like corruption and heavy handedness against opposition parties? Like, I mean, is it, I mean, is that just becoming too ideological purist or stateless societies like susceptible to that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, I guess I don't know enough about the legitimacy of their claims, but I'm sure there probably is some of that. You know what I mean? You could argue that maybe perhaps it was ripe for opposition parties because they established a state. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. There's still like a lot to unpack here, but we don't necessarily, we're not going to unpack it all right now. Because again, part of this is going to be a comparison, if not juxtaposition, Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, the PKK, which is the Kurdistani Workers Party out of Turkey, and of course Rojava. That's we're looking at all three of these various these these three different manifestations of uh, attempts at Kurdish autonomy, and they obviously all overlap, right? Like they're like the region is there; they all overlap, and we want to again see this juxtaposition. And again, it's not really a spoiler. We're definitely looking at Rojava. The final one we're going to talk about is is, is perhaps the most inspirational. Um, so with that, we'll probably close out this episode and then kick off the new one by looking specifically at the Kurdish situation, uh, in Turkey and the rise of the Kurdistani, uh, or the Kurdistani workers party party. So with that, I am, uh, I'm Jared Benson. I'm Nick Lee. And, uh, we'll see you on the next one. Remember, you can check us out at revolutionandideology.com. Um, we're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. We are now on iTunes, I'm happy to report. So if you have iTunes on your computer, you don't need an iPhone or a Mac. It can be on any computer. If you have iTunes, find us on there. Um, give us a rating and write us a review. That'll help us climb in the rankings and garner more support for what we are trying to do. So we will talk to you next time where we'll be dissecting PKK. See ya.